Hello and welcome back to Muse Murders, a new podcast where we delve into the unfortunate cases of artists involved in crime. My name is Lithocarp and I'll be joined by Sades and in this episode we will be exploring the genius that is Vincent van Gogh. Welcome to Muse Murders, where art and crime collide. Okay, so we're back. Hello. We're doing Vincent van Gogh. Yeah, just as a note, my accent is not going to allow that that name, so I'm just going to call him Vincent van Gogh. Um, so we're here. I'm sitting. I'm no longer sitting on a stool. I'm sitting on an actual chair. You've been downgraded to a stool. I'm on the stool this time. Yeah. Stooly boy. Um, so it is actually his birthday today. It he is? would be 170 years old. Happy birthday. Paul Happy... went out for the VVG. What? VVG. Oh, Vince. Okay. Is that a thing in the in the art world? No, I just kept. I just couldn't be bothered. So I typed the name so many times. So I just shortened it to VVG. VVG. Nice. <laughs> Sounds like a um, like a German mechanical engineering term VVG. No, it'd be like a like a nut, you know. I'm just like tightening up a nut. Okay, so I wanted to ask you first. What do you know about Vincent van Gogh? <laughs> because he's he's conscious in 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 everyone's mind. But what what do you know about him? Apart from the research that I did for the end segment that we're going to do, which is my segment. I have my end segment. Um, absolutely nothing. I know that he was visually impaired, which is why you have Starry Night and it's all sort of like in swirls. Uh, I also know that he was played by um, the Green Goblin. Willem Dafoe. Yes. Yeah, that guy. Um, recently. Uh, I say recently, it was probably like four years ago. But uh, that film was misleading. I know that there was this diary found in the film and it actually turned out that the diary wasn't actually Vincent's anyway. That's all I know. Well, that's quite an eclectic lot of nonsense. Not that it's not true. It's just very small weird tidbits like you didn't know he was a painter uh, well i know he i know he's a painter and i know about some flowers i know that he uh when he was depressed he painted sunflowers i mean i wasn't there so i couldn't i can't corroborate but yes sure anyway i just so it's kind of obviously we are a bit far away from 1853 which is when he was born so there's not many details about his childhood. So he was born 30th of March, not to date ourselves, but yeah, 1853 in Zundert, sorry. And his brother Theo, who is very, very close to, was born four years later. So uh, yeah, that's the beginning of the artist's life. If you could imagine the, the burst of light as his eyes first cast upon his mother's face. <laughs> I don't know. Um, so yeah, there's not much about his growing up life, but he did go to a lot of different schools and never for really more than two years. So what we do know about his school career, if you call it a career, that's what I've written. 
A school career. A school career, yeah. yeah. Did he work as a teacher? We'll get into that. This is referring to the time he spent one year at the village school in his village in Zundert. He then moved to a boarding school for two years. I then went to a grammar school for a few years, and but never really settled anywhere, which is a very common theme for the rest of his life. There's a, a lot of moving around and uh, going one place, returning to another, then going to another place. There's a lot of moving about in his life. Very transient lifestyle, but on a not on a quick scale like he, he did stay a few years in certain places but he he moved around a lot as you'll see so does that mean i can put my nursery and school years in general on my cv as a work experience okay so he had a transient life style as opposed to non-style um so <laughs> he had a transient life even when he was a child and there's no real explanation for it it's not explained if he was kicked out of schools or if his parents moved around to different areas it was not it's not well i, I couldn't find it and if i can't find it and it surely doesn't exist so we jump we jump ahead a little bit just a little 13 years we're in 1869 now, which let's laugh at the number 69 because that's what we do. <laughs> so in 1869, he joined the International Art Dealers Group, Goupil and Co. Not sure if that's how you say it, but Goupil and Co. So? No, Co. <laughs> co? Uh, now you made me forget what the hell I was saying. What time, what, what age was he? He was 15, which is very young, but we have to realise this is a few hundred years ago. This is a few hundred years ago. So this was his first exposure to art, specifically the art dealing side of things, selling art, valuating art. Um, he quite quickly grew to hate this part of, of art. It is ironic that he started as a dealer and yet famously in his life only sold one painting. He did, he was commissioned for a few things, but only one painting ever sold. So, um, after six years there, so he is now 21, uh, he was relocated to the London branch, which is quite interesting because, I mean, personally, I didn't know he'd ever come to, to, to Britain, to, to the UK. I, I had no idea. Should I then start talking about London? I was concerned that <laughs> that I would talk too much about London. What I will say is he was in a reasonable living condition, normal working class, sort of teetering on middle class. It, it is quite interesting that the uh, probably the most famous poor starving artist was able to achieve at least upper lower class standard of living in in britain at the time i mean for the rest of us is well sorry for the for most of the rest of his life lives he lives in cheap lodging or with friends and so it's there's something interesting there <laughs> just take all that out anyway uh so he didn't like this not didn't like being in london as you'll discuss but he didn't like being moved but it was a progressive dislike 
he did actually like it. At the very beginning, he loved going to London and he loved the environment. And we'll, we'll see exactly why he didn't like it and why he moved. Or at least one reason why. This section of the podcast will explore Vincent van Gogh's life in London. It will refer to a series of tweets that I made on the Muse Murders main Twitter account. If you want to go and see these tweets, it's just Muse Murders on Twitter, where you can see the images that I will be referring to. I was I tweeted out about this just before we recorded this episode. I know a little bit about London within this time frame. Mid to late 19th century was my speciality when it comes to uh, social history uh, in university. And when I had, when I first learned about him living in London, my first thought would, was to go straight to Charles Booth. And Charles Booth, who is uh, from Liverpool, he actually did a whole map and colour-coded every single building in a large portion of London um, according to social class. And it is an extremely good illustration of um, not only the, uh, the simplification of West versus East London, but also just life in London in general. If you have a look at the, the house... Um, on his street, I've, I've circled the, the street um, and the, the house that he would live in. And you'll see that a lot of it is not quite red. It's more of a striped red um, going on pink, which meant that he was in a very, not very comfortable, but comfortable working class condition. Around him, you'll see the, the sort of vibrant red and that denotes uh, middle-class uh, housing. And in one of his sketches, which is to the right of that tweet, um, you'll actually see what I would say is a very middle-class looking house. It's got steps up to it. To the left of this house in the center um, was where he lived, I think. I might be completely wrong. But it's very interesting as well, because over the road is a boarding school and it is still a school today and it's actually a, a primary school and it's the Vincent van Gogh primary school. So little did he know that when he came to live in London, the school over the road he saw every day coming out of his house to travel to work would actually be named after him. Behind his house is a sort of stripy blue and stripy blue denotes a, um, a poor condition, poor living condition. And it's interesting because one of his one of his paintings is actually of the prison, uh, a prison in London. I don't know if you can get that up, but he really didn't like the living conditions of the poor in London. And it was a major debate throughout the 19th century. Towards the end of the 19th century, it was very much the opinion of everyone that you'd have support systems supporting the poor. This is sort of the beginning of the benefit state type of thing, right? So, when he came out of his house, he was looking at a primary school that's now named after him. When he looks at the back of his house, he's looking at the, the impoverished um, living conditions 
that he hated so much. So it's no wonder, really, that he moved from London away to... Where was it? Nunion. 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 Back to his parents. So, interesting fact is that his workplace was in Camden Market. And Camden Market is about 20, 30 minutes away from Hyde Park, which is the subject that I that I studied. And he, uh, Sades is rolling his eyes, because I've talked about this so many times, but I'll be brief. Um, basically, you saying that he was a preacher is very interesting, especially because he's 20 minutes away from Hyde Park. Hyde Park had Reformer's Tree, and later was known as um, the Speaker's Corner, which is still there today, and it's imitated throughout the world. Speaker's Corner is on a lot of the major parks in the world. The, the sort of nature of preaching within the park was that anyone could stand up on literally anything that made them above the crowd, so they could actually speak to the crowd. It was a large crowd, and you'd have multiple speakers at once it was very chaotic very chaotic conditions um but you would actually speak and interesting point is that he was being paid quite nicely especially for his age he was being paid quite nicely but if he did in fact preach in hyde park he would be deemed um quite ill-fitting of uh the sort of middle class behaviors and the upper, uh, certainly obviously the upper class behaviours. We do know that he was in Hyde Park at one point because he did actually com- compliment Hyde Park's um, variation of flowers. He didn't apparently see so many flowers that he didn't know um, in one park. It's just very weird that if he did preach in Hyde Park, it was the opposite of what his living conditions would, would have um, suggested. But does it speak more to the character of Van Gogh? Did he care about what middle-class people in London thought of him? Probably not, especially not if he preached in Hyde Park. That's pretty interesting, actually. I mean, I just stood here, sat here with a blank face because I don't know any of this stuff. I've probably, like, skimmed the surface so much that no one understands what the hell I've just said. <laughs> but I've said something and it's there now, so there you go. So after only a year at the London branch, it was his parent company, the Group and Co, was purchased by another company. Can't remember who it was. Haven't written it down. Whoops. <laughs> they decided to fire Van Gogh because he wasn't really selling. Because he he grew to resent the the industry. He didn't like it. So interesting though, because I read that Goupil and Co actually bought out another company in London, which is why they moved to London, because he was setting up a new gallery. So basically, they bought out one company, and then a bigger company bought out them. It's like sort of Russian doll. (laughs) Dutch dolls. Dutch dolls. I will say I left my part of that very light because I figured you would talk mostly about the London stuff. Thank you. So this was around a time as well. He left, obviously, the job, but stayed in London and he became very engrossed in the Bible and Bible texts and also secluding himself. He got very 
into the idea of being alone and with one's own thoughts, which is, in some ways, it's very normal, but knowing what we know about them, it's quite, quite sad. Also very fashionable. Very fashionable. Because the Victorians did like a hermit. Second episode in the row where Josh gives us a tidbit about Victorians. Moving on. Yeah, but this is purposeful, though, <laughs> right? This is not 200 years after the fact. This is present, like, this is within his lifetime. I'll give you a pass. I'll give you a pass. So after leaving the job and getting into the Bible and being by himself, or Bible myself, hashtag. Oh, Bible Do people still hashtag stuff? Yeah, all of the hashtags, every single one of them. He got a new job as a teacher in a boarding school, which again, I'm sure you'll touch on. He, that was in Ramsgate. And he, uh, but then he did opt to move to Isleworth. Is Isleworth. I want to say that. Isleworth. <laughs> Isleworth. Uh, where he would spend most of his time just preaching. Spent a lot of time just preaching in the street, like those, those weirdos you see in town nowadays. Yes, I'm calling you weirdos. That's, that's like 80% of our audience just gone. <laughs> Sorry, Christians. <laughs> But uh, yeah, the lack of job opportunities meant he moved home in that Christmas. So his stay in London was uh, two years, something like that. Uh, so yeah, he gets back to the Netherlands and he gets a job in a bookstore. Uh, that's fun. He then decided that that wasn't for him. And again, moved. Uh, he decided this time that he would go to Amsterdam to do some theological studies. And then he decided he didn't really like that either. So he left again. But this was when he made the faithful decision to be an artist. So now we pick up again with him in 1881. This is, he's decided to become an artist and this is the road he's on. So he met the painter Anton van Rappard in Brussels during the winter. Again, he was in Brussels. Very transient lifestyle, as we've spoken about. Uh, but it was during this time frame that his brother Theo took financial responsibility for him and would send him an allowance so that he could support himself in some way. And it's something he continued to do for all of his life. I mean, his, his brother Theo was the backbone of his support system, and it's very apparent that they were very close and loving. I may be slightly biased on how cute I think their relationship is because most of the sources I used for uh, contemporaries' talents did come from Van Gogh and, and his brother Theo's letters, which are very nice. I mean, it's nice to see brothers be nice to each other, you know, when the the, the usual idea in media is oh, brothers are always loggerheads and stuff. Which, I mean, it's true sometimes, but anyway. Oh, it's like that... Um blood brothers you know by willie russell who was a teacher at my school i was gonna say that you just had to ruin it for me although i suppose it's not my <laughs> so he then met another artist in the november anton morve mauve i want to say more mauve and it was he, he sort of took on van gogh's teacher role he let him study certain things and he would instruct him on the basics he was, he was his teacher, tutor, I suppose. And this is when he started to first produce his watercolours and also some still lives and oil. Um, and just so that everybody knows, still lives are like the sunflower. It's it's frame of life. That feels so deep, a frame of life. Because how can you frame life otherwise? 
So he was living with his parents at this point, but the relationship was rather rock. And over the Christmas, he decided to leave because the relationship just wasn't there. And as I said, he moves everywhere. And this time he went to The Hague. Or went back to The Hague, I suppose, because he was at The Hague earlier. Uh, but he went he went there to rent a studio in, and bear with me, Shen Kuang? Shen Kuang? Shen Kuang? Uh, so he, he rented a studio in order to have space so he could do his artwork. And everyone was extremely supportive of this, especially Morph, because, you know, this is what he wanted to do. He was going to be an artist. But... It didn't last because Van Gogh fell for a model he was using, obviously, a muse, if you will. Oh, muse murders. <laughs> but unfortunately for the standards of the time, this was a woman who had already had a daughter, was pregnant and unmarried. So this was a no-no. This was a this was no no no. You know, this is this is this is the equivalent of modern day uh, if a person is wearing white pants. No, no, no. Why? What? What's wrong with white pants? We won't get into it, but there's not enough time. Okay. Well, I, I was just, I was just wearing semi-white pants, linen pants, a few weeks ago, and you didn't say anything to me then. Were you going to say something? Because I don't think this is the cross-examination of Sade, so we're just going to talk about Van Gogh. Okay, very wise. Yes. So, because of this, and obviously, she's pregnant and got a kid and she's not married and, oh, she's living with Van Gogh, all of his friends turned his back on him. Except for Theo, of course. Theo the Rock. Theo the Rock Johnson. <laughs> but it was in March of this year, 1882, just for a reminder, uh, that he got his first commission. Which is always very exciting. Well, like, I suppose it's not as exciting these days because you can just set up a profile on a whatever and get commissions. But back in the day, I mean, to get a commission is a... And it was not just a commission for one self-portrait. It, no, 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 my friend. It was 12 paintings, all of different views of the Hague. And a self-portrait in there. It was that like a complimentary... No, the commission was 12 views of the Hague. I was going to say... Who's... What? What artist sells paintings of themselves to ah, other people? Now, we'll get to that. If you know, I don't know if you do, but Van Gogh is... He produced a lot of self-portraits throughout his life. I did have a look online, and every single self-portrait that he did was a completely different person, or at least felt like a completely different person. I don't know if that's the emotional journey that he's gone on when you've got, you know, you wake up one morning and you feel ugly or you wake up one morning feeling really pretty and like gorgeous. I look quite pretty. Exactly. Anyway, uh, so now I know the comments that are going to come off this hashtag Nepo baby. He was commissioned by his uncle, but his uncle was also an art dealer. Oh, so that's like that's like your your nan giving you like ten yeah, quid. Yeah, here's, the... here's your first commission. Go get me twelve paintings of the Hague, and I'll I'll give you a pound. And so after this commission in the August, this is when Van Gogh decided that he wanted to be profitable. He wanted to be sellable, attractive to 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 customers of of art, and he tried a lot of different ways to be attractive. He tried different styles. He tried different mediums. He tried different um, subject matter, but ultimately 
he just couldn't find the style that people wanted to buy, if that makes sense. Uh, he, even, he even tried to make some lithography. Lithography. Uh, did you say lithography because of my I did, yes. internet name? Yeah, okay. And he, he tried to become an illustrator, but again, didn't really work. So by 1883, all of the opportunities had dried up. His poverty was only further deepened and his relationship with the model he took in, whose name was Sien Dornick or Hornick. Was she beautiful? I didn't see a photo. Shall we have a look? Okay. Do we want to get cancelled for, for ridiculing a woman from 200 years ago? I don't know if you can get cancelled for that, can you? Um, yeah. He, 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 she reminds me... Exactly. She reminds me of the three witches from um, Hamlet. Moving on swiftly. So all of these factors led to Van Gogh deciding he would move to Drenthe. Uh, this at the time was a very popular place for, for painters and artists to go because there was views, landscapes and townscapes and there was lots of people who were willing to be models for painting and stuff. So it seemed like an ideal location for him. But as usual, man plans and God laughs. Because once he got there, there were obviously some good sides, but there were also a lot of bad sides for him. Namely... He was inspired by the landscapes and the townscapes that I've mentioned. Uh, seemed to be a very popular opinion for most artists who went there. But there were very few materials that he could get. And as he wasn't financially wealthy, he couldn't pay the extra to get the materials that were available. So it was correct that the whole stereotype of this starving artist um, trying to get by. Uh, because obviously... His time in London was very different from now that you're discussing because yeah. I imagine then he had wealth. He had, he ha I actually had more wealth than his dad at one point. But now his wealth has dramatically decreased since becoming an artist instead of an art dealer. That says a lot. I don't know what it says, but it says a lot. Oh, and the, the main factor in why he didn't like Drenth was that his allowance from Theo would often be delayed so he wouldn't have his money. Oh, we know how that feels. Universal so, credit. On the 5th of December, he decided to move back in with his parents in Noonan. Noonan? Noonan. Is this in The Hague? Did you say? This is Noonan. In that? Okay. This is Noonan. N-E-U-N-E-N. Noonan. Okay. Uh, so he went back to live with his parents, and thankfully their relationship improved a lot, which obviously, if you remember from the, when he left, it deteriorated quite uh, quite drastically. So this is, you know, it's good signs. His relationships are getting better. Um, and this was when Van Gogh decided that he wanted to take up the subject matter of peasant life. Now that sounds kind of put downy, but <laughs> it, rem it, rem it, sorry, it focuses on the life of people living the simple life. The wheat harvesters, the people who make the bread. As as when he was in uh, Union, he was uh, he would often watch the local weavers weave the ropes for the town 
and be inspired by how such a uh, or as he viewed a, a small part of of the big picture of the life of the city was still expertly crafted and looked after and he, he really romanticized the simplicity of 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 life it's interesting that he focused a lot on the weavers of rope because that is exactly the sort of punishment that prisoners used to get isn't it they used to they used to actually craft rope and i think that's where the term money for old rope comes from oh but which is interesting because he did actually do a few paintings or at least one painting of uh, a prison in london when he was there little hint at what i'm going to talk about <laughs> sorry why did you turn into christopher walken so during this time when he was staying with his parents in union he decided to also rent a studio again uh this time just for the year uh and thankfully he was actually commissioned for a painting so it didn't go to waste but uh n not just a painting sorry uh a large painting to be adorned on the local goldsmith's dining room table no dining room wall sorry not a table Interesting. I was going to say, like, this goldsmith is so rich that he can commission uh, a piece of art and then just eat his dinner off it. A <laughs> bit like those, uh, what was it? I think it was like a TikTok where those rich kids eat dinner off an iPad, off the back of an iPad. Oh, God, I could imagine. So during the winter of 1885, which is where we're at now, um, he decided to sketch and paint around 50 portraits of peasants' heads. And with this, not just not decapitated peasants, people, a portrait of a, of a, of a peasant. I was going to say. Yes. Looking, so this whole Muse Murders is just him going around just, beheading peasants and painting, and them, painting yeah. them. As sunflowers. Yeah, and then and then just what sending them back, putting them down in the dirt so the potatoes can be harvested. Well, it's interesting you say potatoes because this was where the inception of the idea for his painting, the potato eaters, came from. The 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 studying of fifty paint fifty peasants' heads. I'm suspicious that a lot of people listening will probably be suspicious of me. I'm suspicious of them being suspicious of me because I think they think I know more than I do. Which I can confirm is completely nonsense. <laughs> he knows nothing. Which you can probably guess from that sentence structure. What the hell was that? <laughs> so he, he sent that piece, the potato eaters, he sent that, to, he finished it in April and sent it to his brother Theo in order to sell. No word on whether it sold or not. A couple of weeks later, his his dad died. That's his dad out of the story. They made up though, so you know. When he died, or no, they'd made up previously. So I was going to say, <laughs> it's very very easy to make up uh, with a dead body, isn't it? So in the May of this year, Van Gogh completed uh, the courtyard country and the cottage. Again, two pieces inspired by the simple life that surrounded them at the time, and as as. As positive as all this sounds, the pattern again emerged that he ran out of financial support and wanted to leave again. But not just because of the financial support. He also left because the local priest banned his parishioners from modelling for artists, which is a very interesting stance. Perhaps it relates to vanity being a sin. I don't know. I'm not a theologian. I mean, you sound like it. <laughs> 
So he then moved into Antwerp, which I do know how to say that name, because I've heard it many times. He touched down in touched down in Antwerp on the 24th of November, which is interesting because it, it seems not only is the pattern there of moving from one place to another until you, you know, your finances run out, you move to another place, but it is interesting to note that he does seem to move a lot during the winter, which sounds innocuous, but I do know from personal experience that the winter does exacerbate depression and I think I think there's something to be said there that his transient lifestyle may have been influenced by his depressive moods uh, although his disorder hadn't emerged at this point what disorder what do you mean disorder well uh, modern doctors not diagnosed but they suspect that he he had a manic depressive disorder which we'd now call bipolar disorder or dissociative disorder um but obviously back then he was just crazy uncle vincent you know just, just loopy oh you but moving to antwerp actually was the wrong move for him because it was a very bustling city at the time and he'd never lived in anything as big as a city before what do you mean oh. he lived in london well yeah but that was in his youth He'd been living... Since oh. then, he'd been living in small villages. In, he was living in seclusion as well, wasn't he? Exactly. Ah. But this time, there was no seclusion. There was lots of people, lots of business. Uh, but during this short stay they stayed in Antwerp, he was very inspired by the colours of Peter Paul Ruben, who was uh, another paint, painter from the, the period. Bold colours, very vivid. That's all. You know, that he was encapsulated by the... the vivid expression of colours, uh, which again could tie into his visual impairment, although that wasn't noticeably degrading. Uh, and he also got into Japanese Japanese print art, such as the, the Great Wave that we've everyone's seen. The Big Wave. Oh! The Flood. Yes, I uh, the Flood? The, the, the Big Wave. Oh, the, the one with the boat. I just know it as the Great Wave. It's got a wave and it's got a boat in it? So that, that's a particular style of art where it's pressed on to material. I was having a look at a le Lego, a Lego version, the Great Wave. Other plastic bricks are available. I was having a look at a plastic brick version <laughs> of the Great Wave. Interesting. Um, Japan, I think, only recently at this date... It's probably been about 60, 70 years since they have de-isolated. They've actually explored and let in foreign uh, visitors. Um, this is the, the point in Japan where you have a lot of American, British, European influence within Japan. So it makes sense that he was drawn to a newer what would be deemed a fresher look of, of uh, the world. Exactly, yeah. And they, they they inspired him greatly, and we'll see later on. He, he actually collected a lot of pieces of Japanese print art and uh, exhibited them in a, in a small exhibition that he held, which was one of three, I think. 
which is quite interesting because again our idea of Van Gogh is that he was very unsuccessful and never, no one ever came to see his art but he did run exhibits some of them his own art and people came to see it and they were very popular so which is probably the experience that he gained while being whilst being an art dealer and opening up that new art gallery in in London basically all i'm saying is that all, <laughs> from what i know from his visit in London he opened an art gallery and he lived on a fairly okay street so as a as a final note for antwerp because he didn't stay long but this was a place where he joined an art academy but it also caused him to be very conflicted about his own style of art because this was not the Vincent van Gogh that we think of with the impressionist view and the, the thick paints and the texture this was not this was just Vincent van Gogh painting paintings so he was very conflicted about what what his point of view as an artist was which again was something that didn't he didn't escape and probably was due to depression and stuff like that, which is sad. But I mean, he's, he's loved now. If he could see us now. Oh, if he could see that Doctor Who episode that he was in. I was wondering how long we'd go before mentioning a Doctor Who episode. That was also another piece of media that I know him from. When I say I know him from, I actually only watched a clip of that episode. I've actually never watched the episode. You should watch the episode. It's great. It's really great. It feels like... We've reached back in time and gave Vincent van Gogh his flowers and he knows that he was, it was fine. Which again falls into the starving artist thing. So then, continuing the transient lifestyle, we moved to little old Paris. City of Light. Which at the time was, I mean, still it's now, but at the time was very popular amongst Europeans. Well, it was an extremely accepting uh, environment to be in, I guess. Uh, you know, if it was good enough for Oscar Wilde, it was good enough for anyone to be exiled or otherwise. So he went to Paris to live with his brother Theo and his, his wife at the time. I don't think Theo had any children yet, but he might have and I might have just missed it. He does, later on in his life, uh, Van Gogh did paint a painting specifically for to celebrate the birth of his nephew, but I don't know if that was an only child or just his favourite one. He just really liked that one. Well, I mean, I, I've been told that all parents have a favourite. Um, I don't know who my parents' favourite is, but I hope it was me. Or is me, sorry. As if I'm not their child anymore. He started working at Fernandez Ormond's art studio. Um... And this was around the time that Van Gogh started to get into Impressionism, his iconic style. This is when he started to connect the dots between how he wanted to express himself and the messaging of Impressionism. And a lot of people do also believe that his affinity to Impressionism was a reflection of his deteriorating eyesight. There's no real mention of his eyesight for another few years, so I'm not really sure whether that does play a part, but it's interesting to speculate. So it was the next year... In 1887, still in Paris, that he created the collection of Japanese art for the exhibition, which was very popular. It was in Café du Tamperine, or Tamperin, sorry. Uh, this then led to him visiting a friend, uh, Paul Signac, in Asineris. Um Obviously, Paul Signac was another artist, and they connected through his exhibitions. 
Uh, and it was during this time that he started to paint a lot more portraits in an impressionist and neo-impressionist style, um, which obviously is his signature style. Yeah, Matrix and everything. Yeah, of course. And when he got back to Paris from being with Paul, he again set up another exhibition. Exhibition. This time it was focused on impressionists and impressionist artists, and he included some of his own work. And it was a, it was a display that he called Impressionistes du Petit Boulevard. So you can imagine there is it is a full uh, city center sized area that is just for impressionist artists to display work which is i mean well he displayed it obviously which is i mean that would be quite cool to go to where is this boulevard in paris where in paris is it like is it i'm thinking ratatouille you're always thinking ratatouille i'm thinking on the underground you know the the under bit where they have a discussion next to the river he says stuff and they agree to carry on together. You know what I want to know? And I'd love people to reach out and answer this for me. Why does Remy have an American accent in Ratatouille? I don't get it. Is he an American rat? Leave your thoughts below. I've, I've told you this before and I will say it again. Um, rats don't speak English, so it doesn't really matter what type of accent they have. But we have discovered increasingly that animals do have regional accents. Well, I, I don't think Disney or Pixar are going to go that much into detail, but you never know. Just saying. I don't get it. And then it was after this Petit Boulevard uh, exhibit that he, he displayed a piece of his own work. Uh, he showed the, the Voyeur de Argenson Park in Asenaries. And he displayed this piece in the Theatre Libre d'Antion. So, as the next year came on, 1888, which is one of my favourite years, because 1888 is just fun to say. It's like 1999. It's just fun. Anyway, uh, the the life he'd been living in Paris, obviously, was moving around, seeing different friends, organising exhibits, doing m- multiple paintings. This all started to really catch up with him, and fatigue was the word. He was tired physically and mentally, and... It led to him not being able to produce any work for, for, for some time. Because he was so tired, he decided he needed a change of scenery. Again, falling back into the transient patterns that we've seen. Uh, and this time he decided to go to Orlais. Orlais? I think there's a racing track. Wouldn't know. Uh, well, from what, from what I gathered... From Gran Turismo, there is. Ah, okay. Good old Gran Turismo. Although it might just be made up, you never know. The whole place? Just France, yeah. I've never been. Although I have actually been to (laughs) France. (laughs) So he decided to go to Arles and he decided that this was going to be the great move to re-energise him. But again, man plans, God laughs. And the weather in Arles was terrible. There was no warmth. There was snow. And I know, obviously, weather is not just the only reason he wanted to move, but it really did bring a a downer on his... Well, there's no colour, is there? Exactly. And for an artist who dealt in so many vivid colours, it must have been quite bleak. Um, but again, around March, he decided he started to get back into the rhythm and 
come out of this this it's not classed as one of his depressive episodes but i'm willing to bet it was a very depressive episode for him uh and he starts to come out of it and then he produced one of his most famous pieces in or sorry a one version of his very famous pieces in the self-portrait which is this was i think this is the first one he did in the impressionist style which i mean obviously his signature style um and he also painted a lot of fruit trees in bloom which i'm not sure what that means like i understand from a i don't understand what those words mean but i don't know what a fruit tree in bloom looks like is that just a tree with apples on it yeah tree with apples tree with oranges tree with pears <laughs> the list could go on his brother theo like obviously still there supporting theo the rock johnson van gogh um he persuaded van gogh to submit three large canvases to the salon des, des Independents, which was just a very popular club at the time well, and i obviously used the term club loosely because they weren't dancing to pop music or whatever but it was where people would go and hang out and art would be there and artists would be there musicians it was like a pinnacle of culture and so he decided to start working on this and he immediately rented four rooms in the yellow house which is a specific yellow house or was a specific yellow house sadly it is gone now because of a certain world war ii bombing raid but i mean that's like most of europe so he had four rooms in the house which essentially is a house um but he was too poor to furnish it and so instead he lived in cheap lodgings until around september which is when a friend was coming to visit him and he decided he did that thing we all do is like oh my house looks terrible so he decided to quickly furnish the whole house so that his his life would seem complete when his friend came to visit very relatable so going back to the self-portrait he obviously finished this in the same year as all of those other works which is 1888 again after his after his depressive episode he created the self-portrait in, in to be exchanged with two other artists self-portraits it was a trade between the three of them that's why he painted the self-portrait it was to be sent to i do have the names i think check my book i do have their names emile bernard and paul gauguin gaugin gaugin gorgin gorgon i'll give you every every possibility just edit in the right one just uh settled on a um isn't a gorgon a one of the witches from uh greek mythology yeah uh so after painting the self-portrait he started to notice that his eyes were just deteriorating uh, he wasn't able to see colors as, as well uh there's rumors obviously that he had a not swirly vision because that's not technically right but he was seeing yellow circles around uh, which is why starry night looks the way it looks and it was because of this he worked extra hard, hard to complete several large canvases when i say large canvases obviously we think a large canvas maybe like I don't know maybe 50 inches by 50 inches or something so like that it's not it's not going to be like painting a large painting in the sims no it's like the equivalent of like five meters of work like it's a lot of uh, quite a lot of painting 
yeah, he he made the Tarascon Diligence, the tr the Trinquetile Bridge, and the Bedroom. These are very mysterious titles. Um, I've actually seen the bedroom. That's with the weird bed, isn't it? With um, sort of like a light brown wood. So this was again during the time when his his friend visited, as I, as I mentioned before, Paul Galgan. His visit led to a, a great lift of spirits in, in Van Gogh, but unfortunately, again, it didn't last. Van Gogh and Paul became very tempestuous about something. What does tempestuous mean? Well, they just, their, their, their tensions grew to a, a boiling point and they started to argue and, and really fall out. They became bitchy with each other. Well, not just bitchy, because this was during the time where Vincent van Gogh very, very, very famously cut off his ear. Oh, so like, no, I don't know how to describe that. We'll just do literally. I would say that it sounds like the the relationship started to deteriorate at the beginning of a depressive episode, and then that culminated in him cutting his ear off because, from contemporary perspectives, he he was hallucinating and had a lack of consciousness during this cutting the ear off event. And this was this is one of the main episodes of his life where. His, mental health obviously was very quickly deteriorating to the point of self-mutilation but he did go to hospital straight away and he did recover right away and he was fine so to say physically fine, physically fine. not mentally fine. when he got home he made again another version of the self-portrait which is the one with the bandages on does that speak to him recording what's happened or perhaps trying to stop him from doing it again because he can have a look at it all the time or he has that sort of you know go processing what's happened through painting and, and going through the step-by-step -step process I, I would say that he produced so many self-portraits that it probably is the, the latter in that he was essentially documenting where he was at in that precise moment of life that's why there's so many different self-portraits it was a continuously evolving piece of art but yeah he got back and worked on a self-portrait which very iconic to this day especially the bandage one but the other people at the yellow house were very concerned to put it politely about his erratic behavior and he was admitted again into hospital uh, and after being he was only in the hospital for a short time and it wasn't for physical ailments he was just behaving very erratically so then he left and went back to the the yellow house and then he decided to voluntarily admit himself to the saint peter de, Mou de Mousseau, where he was treated by a doc dr perrin and this is where the theories of him being manic depressive come from dr perrin's notes not that we have this the notes but we have temporary versions of the notes like we have evidence there what how was the treatment we obviously know that the Victorians and the sort of early 20th century Edwardian people weren't exactly great when it came to... They were okay at physical health a little bit. Even then, they were a bit shoddy. But um, when it comes to mental health, extremely limited in, in what they know. It's very hard to say, if I'm honest. Most of the sources I said just said... He received treatment, but the main focus of his treatment seemed to be 
artistic expression. They made an extra room for him to continue to paint. Uh, he painted the, the irises and lilacs that would show up in the fields of the asylum. This is also when he produced the Starry Night as we know it, the vision we know. And that, that was, again, their only real treatment, it seems, because he did have depressive episodes afterwards. Again, in, in the July of the same year, and a, 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 this depressive episode, which was, he was down rather than up, because obviously with manic depression, you can be extremely high or extremely low. He was extremely low until September, from July until September, which is a long time to be in that type of state. And again, he would never produce any of his, any work during this time, apart from a few self-portraits. And he did a replica of another painting called The Reaper, but he never produced anything new. He, there was nothing creative coming out of him at the time. So it's a, an uphill battle when it comes to him not only being mentally stable, but also being equipped mentally for painting. Correct. But then in the following... January, so only like five five months between them, he again suffered a, a much shorter episode, has to be said, but again, another depressive episode, and he again stopped producing things. But this this was the, around the time, he when he came out of it around mid-February, he painted the painting for to celebrate his nephew's birth, which obviously is quite, quite nice. Uh, and it's also the year that he finally sold a painting. Okay, not commissions. And this is as far as I could find. There might be other things that I've missed and that's my bad. But as far as I could find, the only thing that he ever sold was the Red Vineyard for 400 francs. That was in 1889. So then it was soon after this that he, he got an overwhelming sense that he needed to leave the asylum. He needed to go back to living as he was. And so he did leave and he left for Auvers sur Ousse. He made a little trip to Theo and his family beforehand in Paris. But once he got to Auvers, I'm just going to call it Auvers, he immediately placed himself in the care of a, a local doctor called Paul Gaucher. And around the 8th of June, the doctor, the good doctor, he invited Theo to come to Auvers with the family. But alas, we come to the 27th of July. Very unknown day in Vincent van Gogh's life. We know how it started, how it ended. We don't know what happened in the middle. He woke up at 9am and had some breakfast with the other lodgers at the lodgings he was at. He left around 10 a.m. He took his easel and art supplies and he was going to paint in the wheat fields as he'd done many times. And then usually his his routine would be he'd be back around six for food and then he'd go to bed. But he didn't come back until nine. And they were very worried about it because it was very out of the out of the ordinary. And when he came back, he was holding his stomach, but he made no mention of anything that had happened and just went upstairs to bed. It was only later when the barkeeper came in to see if he was okay that he then said, I've been shot. And so straight away, the innkeeper jumps through and gets the doctor in and the doctor tries to help. Uh, the Because he left it for so long, it became infected and that's what it, eventually he did die of. But before he died, he made the quote to the doctor. My body is mine and I am free to do what I want with it. 
do not accuse somebody. It is I that wish to commit suicide. And everybody sort of took that as not a confession, but that was what happened. Vincent van Gogh killed himself. But there is an alternative theory, which is both circumstantial and scientific, in that there are lots of questions about that day. For example, nobody ever found his art supplies. He went out with them, he didn't come in with them. He, there's at least four hours of the day unaccounted for in his routine. And he also, to return from the wheat fields that he usually goes to, that's obviously assuming he went to the ones he usually went to, that was two kilometers away. So he would have had to walk around two kilometers with a bullet wound, which is not, it's not impossible, but I mean, it's, it's not something you'd expect to happen. So the alternative theory is that he was a victim of manslaughter and it's theorized that it was a local gang of guys who were said to have tormented Vincent in the past as one of the members of the gang confessed to that during the investigation that tormented him in the past but that they'd never harmed him physically. But the theory goes that these guys were very drunk and saw Vincent out there painting and decided to torment him and things got out of hand they shot Vincent, and Vincent passed out before making his way to the innkeeper. Uh, this, according to them, this is supported by not finding the art supplies, the distance that he would have to try, travel with a, a bullet wound, and the the trajectory of the bullet going through his abdomen. It was tested by Hoffman Aremberg et al. in December 2020, so quite recent was. Uh, they took the exact same revolver that he was killed with and they tried to angle it in such a way that they could produce the same wound that he had if he had killed himself. But in order to do that, it would have been held at a very awkward angle, which would have had at least a 50% chance of missing. And he also would have had black gunpowder on his hands, which was never, never mentioned. Obviously, someone could have just overlooked it, but you'd think someone would mention it in this case. Uh, and... The, so this has led to Nafer and Smith. They are biographers. Uh, they are the ones who came up with this alternative theory. But the, this scientific evidence with the circumstantial evidence lead them to believe that he was shot by the gang and he covered for them because he was, again, in a depressive mood, which is why it's interesting that his, his last words said, do not accuse somebody. It is I that wished commit suicide the suicide conversation is also contradicted by the fact that in several letters that he had sent to theo he had described suicide as immoral and a sin and now obviously that just sounds like something someone would say but his dad was a protestant clergyman he got into the bible and bible text and he, he seemed to be very religious he was a preacher for a while so it it's not too far inconceivable that he did genuinely hold that uh, ideal. But there is also the art historian John Rewald. Uh, in the 1930s, he visited Auvers to try and get a picture of what had happened. So obviously this is 40 years after the event, but he was able to talk to people who were there at the time. He thinks that it's it's... The theory of the gang is correct, but because of Vincent van Gogh's mental state, he accepted the death. And because he accepted the death, he accepted 
responsibility for suicide, which is why he covered for the people who shot him, if you understand the logically. So it, it's, it's, it's very speculative, and obviously nothing at this point, I don't think anything we do could prove it. Um, but there, there's a strong theory that he was killed by a gang and covered for it because his mental state wasn't necessarily as good. That is um, challenged by other art historians who say that actually if you take a look at his work towards the end of his life, it was getting happier and more expressive uh, because you're able to see his mood through his paintings. So. But we know that in terms of depression, I mean, it's not, it's not like, you know, oh, his work's getting happier so then he must be cured of depression and he's fine now. He could have just been having an extremely bad depressive episode that day. So Theo visited with his family on the 8th of June and then a letter was sent from Van Gogh to Theo. This was the 10th of July, 1890. So this is 19 days, well, two weeks before his, his death. And he's quoted as saying, my life is attacked at the very root my step also faltering which again speaks to a decline in mental state so again i don't think we're going to be able to find out exactly what happened but i do i do find truth or i believe in the theory of him being shot by a gang and then assuming responsibility because i i understand i mean i feel like i understand how uh, depression works from my own experience and I, i feel like that is the most fitting with the rest of the narrative of his life if that makes sense what are your thoughts? Do you think he was? Do you think he killed himself? Because, I mean, the people around him at the time, his his doctor, the brother, his friends, they all said that it probably was suicide. He probably did kill himself. So those are the people who knew him best and were around him a lot more than. I mean, I've never met him, unfortunately, <laughs> but the people around him thought, yeah, this was suicide, hot and close. It's only really, relatively recently, the people have looked at circumstantial evidence with a more forensic eye that they've thought maybe this doesn't add up so where do you fall do you think do you think he killed himself because of a decline in mental state or do you think there was an incident that he took responsibility for and he ended up dying I can't help but feel like it's a bit like it's it's not as absurd as uh, some of the theories that Adolf Hitler didn't commit suicide and, and was in fact in Argentina and died there at a later age. But it does have some of the traits of a more absurd sort of rationality behind it i don't know i don't think that to have you know the gunshot the science saying that apparently it's not possible for him to shoot himself i don't think that that should lead us to believe that he didn't shoot himself i agree Um, i agree and i feel like in order to base your evidence on purely that decision and then assuming everything else seems a little bit off especially when we have the family his friends and and himself saying that he he wished to die um and i don't think yeah i think is it a coincidence that it's only just happened in 
in the recent decades and it didn't happen anywhere around his his death or or wasn't a popular opinion when he died i would suggest that that may be leaning towards a more sort of internet you know the the sort of barrel rolling almost like a a snowballing effect of okay well if we can get this theory then we can do this and then he may have done that and he may have done this I don't feel like it's the rational explanation especially from you recounting his life he was a very depressed person he he went through this all the time and I feel like Sure, what what is the purpose for us to say that the gang killed him? What does that give us? Does it give us any new information on the character of Van Gogh? Or does it simply lead to more speculation and conspiracy theories? Is it just for us as the observer recounting his life from the history books? And us maybe perhaps taking the role of just being fanciful and, and enjoying the details and enjoying speculation. We all like murder. I mean, that's the reason why we're doing a podcast. News murders. You know, there's a reason why there's so many true crime podcasts out there. We love to speculate and we love to focus on the more gruesome things instead of the more logical explanations um yeah it just feels a bit a bit too constructed it feels very constructed i think especially considering his life as a whole it's it's a bit constructed it's a shame that we'll never know but i i agree that i don't think it's important because i think the sum of his life was a, a mystery. He may have committed suicide. He may have been killed. But he did produce artworks of, of, of masterful technique. He did produce tons of sketches and studies. He, he, you know, we have what he did do rather than what he could have done. And I think that's much more important, what, what he did do. We need to celebrate every painting that he... It, 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 as much as this is obviously about Vincent van Gogh's death, I also wanted it to showcase a lot of Vincent van Gogh's life because I personally feel that a lot of people have this idea of Vincent van Gogh, oh yeah, the, the crazy man who cut off his ear and then shot himself and he produced the whaley paintings and that's true to an extent, obviously. But he did, he lived a very interesting transient life. He lived in lots of different places. He tried different avenues of expressing his art. There's tons of different examples of styles of art that he tried and even things like, uh, I personally never knew that he was um, that religious to be a pre. Like, I didn't know he was a preacher. I didn't know that he purposely moved to another part of London so that he was able to preach. It, 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 those are interesting facts to me. And I think that that's more important than whether he did or did not commit suicide, personally. I feel like it's just another consequence of, of us in history looking back especially because it's history and it's not the past which is completely different there they might as well be worlds apart when it comes to it the history is 
things that is recorded and the past is obviously things that have happened and those things can be separate even when you record the same event. It depends on the person, it depends on how they feel that day, are they perhaps missing the point of the gunpowder on the hands, we don't know, but I feel like it's oversimplification in order to say that he was a depressed man and so he, um, you know, even if even if someone shot him, he would say, oh, well, you know, I might as well go anyway type of thing. You know, I just feel like, you know, there's moments from especially I don't I don't know if you do mind this, but especially looking at your depression, I feel like you're not defined by depression. You just so happen to have depression. And I feel like those days that you are feeling uh, not necessarily okay, but you're feeling more secure and stable, that you, those are the days that should count towards a life. And right? I, think, I think that's beautiful. Thank you for mocking that. <laughs> but I feel like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's proven as well, the Doctor Who episode, um, from, from the clips that I've seen that have trended on online, it's basically just the same narrative of this depressed man that wanted to be loved and is being loved weirdly in a Doctor Who episode. Um, he, he didn't even know what Doctor Who was. Um, did he care? I don't know. Does he care now? Will he care ever? I don't know. I don't, I don't really know if he did care, to be honest. And I don't think he'd care us speculating whether he was murdered or not. I feel like in both events, he wanted to commit suicide, right? So, I think that's the end of the uh, the podcast. Any closing statement? What do you think about Van Gogh's life? Um, how, was he a, a, a depressive person throughout his life? Or did he have times where he perhaps went against the grain of public opinion? Yes is the short answer, but the long answer would be, I think we have identified the lows of his life and not the highs and so we have this idea of him being this depressed starving artist but uh, he was depressed but there were also a, a lot of joy and happiness in his life his relationship with his brother Theo the amount of times he would get he would produce a lot of work in a short span of time I mean that speaks to someone who was I mean not happy but they're at least in in a higher state of of, of sensibility rather than being depressed so I just think it's down to the narrative that we've constructed for him. I, I think the Van Gogh that is in the public conscious is just a very simple version of a very complex and interesting person. Okay, so that is the end of this episode of Muse Murders, where we explored the life and death of Vincent van Gogh. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, please follow us on Twitter, to join in the conversation. This has been Muse Murders, where art and crime collide.